Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, everyone. I'm Dave Meyer. Welcome to On The Market. Today, we have the Vice President of Research at the National Multifamily Housing Council, Caitlin Walter, joining us for a really, really informative interview. You're definitely going to want to stick around for this if you're interested in the multifamily space. In large part due to bigger pockets, I think demand among investors for multifamily apartments, either as a sponsor, like you're going out and buying the deals, or as a passive investor, which is something I do pretty regularly, uh, has exploded. And it's because multifamily over the last couple of years has presented some of the best returns in the entire, not just in the, the housing and real estate industry, but across pretty much every investment class, multifamily units has been very attractive, uh, and it's why people want to get into it. But the question, of course, remains just because it's done well in the last couple of years does not mean it's going to do well in the future. So we wanted to bring on Kaylin Walter to help us understand the state of the multifamily housing market uh, as it sits today, but also what is going to happen in the future. Is the crazy rent growth that we've seen going to continue? Our cap rates, which are the way that multifamily properties are, are valued, are they going to go up or down and change the valuations of apartment buildings? Or is demand going to increase even though we're seeing building at a much higher level than we have over the last couple of years? These are questions I've personally had for a really long time. And I think you're really going to like this interview if you have similar questions to me because Caitlin does an excellent job explaining it. With that, let's bring on Caitlin Walter, the Vice President of Research at the National Multifamily Housing Council. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, 
we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my nine-to-five job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Caitlin Walter, welcome to On The Market. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. You currently work as the Vice President of Research at the National Multifamily Housing Council. Can you tell us a little bit about what that organization does and what you do there on a day-to-day basis? So the National Multifamily Housing Council is the trade organization that represents um, owners, managers, developers, um, as well as um, industry suppliers, so cable companies, things like that, to the apartment industry. It's typically the leadership of those organizations, although we do have a lot of opportunities for folks that are on the lower levels of those of those organizations as well. We do we provide research, we provide government affairs outreach on behalf of our members, also a lot of um, industry best practices um, that we work on. And our owners, the companies can range um, from a couple of folks to, um, you know, thousands of employees. Um, so it really runs the gamut. And at NMHC, I, I work in the research department. So we provide both um, in-house research as well as we do um, contract out some academic and um, consultant research to look at the multifamily industry. So typically rental units in buildings with five units or more. Well, you are the perfect person to be here right now because so much of the data we look at is really mostly talking about single family residences or small multifamily. That is, at least in my experience, the most readily available information about the housing market. And it is so great to find an organization like yours that provides really high quality, um, free for the most part, if I understand research that uh, people can understand this market. I'd love to just start with a high-level overarching question. What is going on in the multifamily housing market right now in August of 2022? So in August of 2022, and I should qualify, it's the end of August 2022 because it seems to change by the week. It's true. It's by the day. You know, you have to say exactly what day we're recording. We just released some research last week. We were fortunate we have a lot of great data providers that provide free data for us to give to our members, looking mainly at the um, professionally managed apartment universe. We still saw in the second quarter really high rent growth. We saw double-digit rent growth in most places. The highest places are in Florida, um, it appears. Um, But people are getting nervous about the state of the overall economy, namely interest rates rising. Um, We've seen a lot of costs going up over the pandemic and even before the pandemic. So insurance costs are going up, property taxes are going up. So while we are seeing those rent increases, we're also seeing operations costs going up too. So folks are starting, if you have interest rates increase, then that's another um, cost item you're going to have to absorb. So folks are still optimistic about the fundamentals of the multifamily 
family industry overall in terms of demand. But I, I think that some of the stuff going on in the economy is giving folks a little bit of a pause. But I'm hopeful that because the demand is is so strong that we should be we should be fine. You know, you did some fascinating research, and I'd love to talk about this before we'll get back to the what's going on in today's market. But you brought up such a good point that demand is extremely strong, and that's led to a lot of confidence in this industry. You just conducted a really fascinating study about long-term demand trends for the multifamily industry. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so we worked with one of our partner organizations, the National Apartment Association, um, to hire consultants, Hoyt um, advisors um, who have worked for us in the past, to look at demand um, going for apartments going um, through 2035. And it found that nationally we'll need to build 4.3 million new units by 2035 to keep up with demand. And and of that 4.3 million units, we actually need about 600,000 of those units now um, to ease the affordability crisis. The bulk of that demand is going to be located in the South, um, namely in Texas. It shouldn't be surprising to folks. You look at the news stories where people are moving. A lot of it is in the Southeast. And that demand estimate is actually kind of on the conservative side because they took into account the fact that immigration largely hasn't been occurring in the past couple of years due to a variety of factors. So if we get immigration ramping up again, then that demand number could go even higher. And so you're talking about uh, international immigration, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. That's really interesting. So even with a relatively conservative immigration number, you're saying that we need 4.3 million more multifamily units over the next, was that, 12 or 13 years. And then 600,000 is needed right now. Can you provide some context? Is 600,000 a lot? Is you know that achievable in the next couple of years? Or is that something that the construction industry is going to struggle with? So it is a lot. <laughs> it is doable, but there are a lot of headwinds. So it's taking a step back. When the housing crisis happened in 2007 and 2008, that coincided with the millennials um, coming online, which traditionally the highest age cohort that rents are young adults. So we had this generation that was the biggest since the baby boomers that all need to rent apartments. And um, because folks were concerned about building because of what was going on with single family, it also bled over to multifamily, so we couldn't build. So we had all these years where we needed to be building 300, 325,000 units, and we were only building 100,000. So that, yeah, <laughs> that was I think that was the lowest we built. Then we had every year you don't meet that demand, it just kind of adds to what you're what you need to build. This year, our completions for the past few years have been about where we needed to be demand-wise on an annual basis, but we've still got that backlog um, of that 600,000 units. And so obviously, there's rent growth is, is good, but we need those units at a variety of price points, not just the high end. And because we had this backlog, we actually, in a normal functioning multifamily market, what you would have is you'd have the class A stuff come on that's brand new. So then the older class A would move down to class B, rents would get more affordable to more people. But because we had this backlog, we actually had reverse filtering happen. So the class B was class A rents, basically. Um, those who would be paying Class A rents, typically they had to pay Class B and so and so on. So that's why stuff has gotten more expensive. So we have that problem going on. We can also only really build to the high end right now. 
because land is expensive, materials are expensive. If you can even get them, the prices have been going up. It's also just really hard to build, period, because of um, NIMBY or not in my backyard opposition. Unfortunately, a lot of folks have these preconceived notions about what's going to happen if you get multifamily in your neighborhood, which isn't true. And so it's hard to actually get stuff um, out of the ground because you usually have to get um, your land rezoned to build multifamily. And so if the NIMBYs are against it, then you it's hard to get the rezoning. So all of those things make it more difficult to actually build new units. So in theory, we could build that 600,000, but there's a lot of reasons why that may not be happening right now. That's extremely helpful context. And I want to get back to the affordability point in just a minute. But just to summarize, if I understand correctly, you're saying that right now we're actually at a decent pace. But because between the Great Recession and recent period, it was so slow, we'd have to basically go above what is a normal level. And we're not going, we're not seeing that yet. And so this backlog of 600,000 apartments, multifamily units has persisted. When you look at construction data, at least on the single family market, which is what I'm a little bit more familiar with in terms of the data, you do see that construction is starting to slow down a little bit. And that's largely because of interest rates and people are feared that that will lower demand and you know labor and material costs are going up very consistently are you seeing similar trends in the multifamily market and is there concern that construction in multifamily actually might go down so there's definitely concern about it single family building tends to be the first to stop um, when you see interest rates go, go up. Multifamily building is typically a longer process. It's even longer now than it has been traditionally. Um, we're looking at two year plus timelines to get a um, to get a, a project built. So because of that, when multifamily developers are looking at the time horizon, they're kind of already building in more economic uncertainty because it is a longer time horizon. But that being said, um, it is impacting things that interest rates, um, folks are having to get deals repriced um, when you have to get a construction loan. Obviously, you have a higher interest rate. It's definitely having an impact, but not a meaningful impact is what I would probably say right now. So that's hopefully positive, right? Because yeah. we would like, you know, assuming I'm just gonna say we would like, but Let's just assume that we would all like to erase these deficits and actually have enough units in the country to meet demand. Um, so we would like to see construction um, stay at an elevated or at, at, a, at a level that we have currently or perhaps even higher to erase the deficit that you said. Now, I want to get back to your point about building A-class uh, buildings. And and that's sort of fascinating. I never really thought about how it makes so much sense that basically A class turns to B class turns to C class. And um, because there is not enough A class in the early 2010s, now there's no B class um, or, or C class even. So that's really fascinating. Um, and I'm curious because you're saying you're, you basically have to build a class, um, and for anyone listening, that's just basically the highest end, you know, nicer level units. Um, is there demand for a class? Like, is there a risk that what what is being built doesn't actually meet what people want or what people can afford? 
So it depends by geography. So you look at places like San Francisco, um, it's so expensive to build there. You really have to have a high income to meet that rent. So it depends on geography. We did see in the pandemic um, a lot of building. We've always had a lot of suburban development, but there was a lot of demand for suburban development because people wanted, you know, a unit with a den or something like that. Um, So there definitely is demand um, across the income spectrum. With the millennials coming online, it has made it so that a lot of them um, seem to prefer the lifestyle of renting. Um, You can move from metro to metro. I know um, when I first started working for the council, I was living in one place. I paid $500 and actually moved to another state um, with the same property manager. So there are a lot of benefits like that to renting. Um, You don't have to pay for, you know, $8,000 HVAC if it goes goes bad. Um, So folks have started to realize those, um, those benefits. So yes, there is demand across the income spectrum. Without some sort of subsidy, you really can't build anything except for the high end um, to you can't make those deals pencil that's what i've seen as well is that it's so expensive to just get things permitted basically it it really prevents builders and developers who might otherwise want to build affordable housing and they can't do it Uh, does your organization track or advocate or do anything in terms of getting those subsidies? Or do you see that subsidies are starting to become more popular so builders can bring affordable units online? So I would say that there is a recogn- there is more of a recognition that it is difficult to build. I'm optimistic because of that. It's still up in the air as to what folks can do about it. The Biden administration has put out a housing plan to try to um, address some of those impediments. However, there really is a limited amount of things that the federal government can do. Um, it really does come down to the local jurisdictions. A couple years ago, the council, um, myself and some colleagues put out, it's called the Housing Affordability Toolkit. And it has a cool infographic that lays out the finances related to building and why it's so hard to build. And then it looks at a variety of tools that local jurisdictions can use with local developers to try to actually build things beyond just at the class A. So things like a voluntary inclusionary zoning um, policy where developers can make the choice to take a density bonus so they can build a little bit higher um, or some more units in um, exchange for providing some units at a certain income level. Um, And so that way um, it achieves both parties' goals. There are some other things too. You can do tax abatement. And it really is though each jurisdiction has to to look at what they have available to them because, you know, what's going to work in Dallas is not going to work in San Francisco, for example. So we are seeing recognition, but unfortunately there are some short-sighted things that folks want to do instead because it seems like a quick, um, you know, turnaround Um, like rent control. Folks think that that'll fix things. It actually makes things worse. So I spend a lot of my time talking to folks about why, um, you know, things like rent control don't work or or a mandatory inclusionary zoning um, ordinance don't work um, because then you're not helping the developer make up that lost revenue and they still have to make their developments pencil. So we do work on things like that at the federal level, the council, we advocate for um, more funding for the low income housing tax credit, which is a way to make more moderate workforce housing 
unfortunately you still can't hit the low income targets you would need some sort of cross subsidy like um, housing choice vouchers which we um, advocate for more funding for that um, it's other, otherwise known as section 8 vouchers so there are some federal subsidy programs but they're way underfunded what is there gets used um, and so we try to make sure that what is there can be used in the best way possible and always ask for more money that's super helpful I I'm very curious about the rent control issue. It's actually something I've always personally just wanted to learn more about. Because, uh, you know, someone posed a question to me the other day about rent control, and Portland, Oregon was used as an example because it does have rent control policies. And as of, I think it was like in May or June, I was looking into it, and it literally had the highest rent growth in the whole country. So how does that make sense? And I know we could do a whole show about this, but can you just give us like a, a quick uh, explainer on why rent control doesn't actually keep rent low? The shortest response is that it's essentially a, a lottery system. You know, not everybody can get a rent controlled unit. You know, there are stories about the old school rent control, which is what, you know, everybody knows in New York City. You know, you pass it down generation to generation. Those are not the folks that largely need the unit anymore. There's lower turnover and they don't have income verification. So you don't know that, you know, the low income household that got it in 1952 is still the low income household in 2022. I shouldn't say 1952. I can't remember what time, what year uh, New York City's was enacted. But you have these well-intended policies to have rent increases at a more normal rate. So it's intended so you're not going to see a 15% rent increase. You're going to see like a 5% increase. Usually it's C, uh, consumer, the CPI plus 5%. But unfortunately, it starts at CPI plus 5. And then another um, another city council comes in and they lower it. And then before you know it, you have what happened in Berkeley, California, where you basically don't have rent increases. We have these huge cost increases that property owners are trying to absorb in, um, for rent or for insurance increases, for property tax increases, you need to be able to absorb those um, absorb those costs. And then the other problem associated with it is we don't have rent control around the United States, nor should we have rent control around the United States. So if I'm a developer that is trying to decide between building in a place that has rent control and building in a place that does not have rent control, I'm going to... and all else equal, I'm going to choose a place that doesn't have rent control. So we saw that happen in last year. St. Paul and Mini St. Paul and Minneapolis both approved rent control ordinances. One went into effect right away in St. Paul, and their development pipeline essentially stopped. People just and so that's what happens with rent control. And we did do a survey with the National Association of Home Builders a few months ago and found that um, yeah, folks do just avoid building in places that have inclusionary zoning um, ordinances or rent control on the books. Wow. Okay. That's super helpful. We might have to do a whole other show about this. I'm sure there's a <laughs> lot to this this topic. There but, is a ton. But thank you for the quick overview. So I want to get to uh, to some actionable items for our listeners, because I'm sure people are listening to this and wondering um, you know, what, as an investor, they should be thinking about. And the first question that comes to mind is, where are you seeing the largest demand? You mentioned Texas, but in your analyses, have you seen other areas that have disproportionately large demand or places that might have falling demand um, on the on the other side of the equation? Texas is one. Florida is another. Um, they seem to have the highest rent growth right now. There are a lot of 
um, cities or metro areas that have been um, traditionally, I would think of them as single family centric places like Nashville and Charleston, South Carolina, they've seen a lot of demand, but they've also seen a lot of building. So um, what I tend to look at is I look at the population growth in a certain metro as well as the, um, as well as what's already been built there. And then also what do you have um, in terms of employment opportunities? Um, so yeah, Texas, has a ton of building, has a ton of population migration, but they've also got a lot of headquarters moving there, which was occurring even before the the pandemic. Um, you look at Plano, Texas, they essentially built an entire new city. They've got several huge um, companies there. Places like Virginia, Northern Virginia, Amazon is going there, um, and it's not just in Arlington. They have huge warehouse facilities in Winchester, which is not that far. Those are all things I look for. Again, places like Nashville, Charleston, they've gotten a lot of attention, but they've also gotten a lot of building. Um, so they would be two that I don't quite see quite so much necessary construction going forward. Is there anywhere that our audience can find some of this data that's publicly available or, or easily digestible that you recommend? Yes. Yeah, so if you go to www.weareapartments.org, it has a map of the U.S. and it will have the total demand and then for the U.S. and then all 50 states and D.C. as well as um, 50 metro areas. Oh, wow. That's very cool. I did not know about that. And I love the URL. So that's weareapartments.com. We'll definitely put a... Yeah, weareapartments.org. Dot org, excuse me. Um, And we will put a link to that in our show notes. Um, So you mentioned at the top of the show that rents were still growing pretty quickly. Uh, What are you seeing in terms of rent growth? How fast is it growing? And is there any signs that it's starting to slow down? So anecdotally, yes, we're hearing it slowing down. However, it has not shown up in the data as of yet. So nationally, the rent growth from RealPage, which is one of our private data providers, was 14.5% year over year in the second quarter. Pretty, Pretty high. So we're expecting... And again, anecdotally expecting that rent growth to to go down a little bit. I should note that that 14.5%, that's professionally managed apartments. So they tend to skew a little towards the higher end. Um, so mom and pops are not, um, are not captured in that data. But I took a look and I believe of the 200 or so metro areas that RealPage covers, all but maybe a dozen had double digit rent growth. It was pretty, it was pretty crazy. Wow, that is that is remarkable. We've been seeing those double digit numbers for I guess was it more than two years now, um, which is it felt unsustainable even at the beginning of that, and now a few years later we're still seeing that. Um, but you said anecdotally, you know, I'm sure in addition to data, which of course lags by at least a month or so, uh, it sounds like some of your operators are seeing that maybe start to to slow down a bit. Yeah, anecdotally, we're hearing that. So again, you mentioned it's a couple years that this has been happening. We had a lot of change at the beginning of the pandemic. Folks, you know, fled the cities. Um, So we saw declines. So for a while, it was just that double digit increase was just getting back to where we would have been had the pandemic not occurred, basically. But we have well surpassed that now. But yeah, some of the deliver some of the um, apartments that have been in the pipeline for quite a while have started to deliver. Um, So so the thought is that this rent growth, we've probably hit hit our top. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, because it's easier to um, 
you know, to, to project out with, with less volatility. Yeah, that, 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 that makes sense. And to your point about affordability, if rent growth keeps going up at a much faster rate than wage growth is going up like it is right now, that could definitely exacerbate the, the affordability problem that we're seeing um, in a lot of markets right now. We saw in the beginning, obviously, there was the rent relief um, that um, that was passed in Congress, um, but now we've seen with you know what's going on with the stock market and interest rates, um, we've started to see kind of the higher end of the economy of the workforce be hit a little bit more. Um, so that might be impacting things as well. It's obviously not concerning at this point, but it might put a little bit of a on a damper of a damper on things. Last week we. We're doing a show, and one of our panelists, who's a regular on the show, her name's Kathy Fecky, was talking about some deals that she was looking at, multifamilies that she was considering investing in. And she was saying that she felt like multifamily pricing for purchases, not not rent, um, hasn't adjusted yet. Like We've started to see, at least in a few select markets on the West Coast and the single-family market, prices are coming down a little bit off their peak. Is there any evidence that pricing in the multifamily market has changed at all to date or is likely to change? I think it's likely to change. Again, I've only heard anecdotal stuff so far. It hasn't shown up in the numbers. Um, so second quarter, Real Capital Analytics, who track a lot of the bigger um, purchases, I think their threshold is a million and a half maybe per transaction. They still had historic highs for in terms of sales volume. But I definitely know it's something that's that people are conscious of, um, that deals need to be repriced and or do, some deals will need to be repriced, I should say. I would expect that to, to start to to happen more. Yeah, I, I was looking at your your data and it seemed like in I think it was Q2 2022, correct me if I'm wrong, the sales volume for total deals done was like one of the highest it's ever been, is that right? Yeah, and so the the tracking started in 01. It still hit a historic high in in the second quarter. Yeah, I think anecdotally we see that, you know, just at bigger pockets in general there's just been a huge amount of interest in multifamily housing because the the things we've been talking about, there's a lot of demand, rent growth has been really strong, it's an attractive um, an attractive option. But, you know, we were chatting before the show, you were, you were sharing some data with me that uh, cap rates, which for anyone listening to is basically a way of valuing multifamily properties based off of their income. And generally speaking, um, sellers want to sell at a low cap rate because that means they get more money for each dollar of rent they collect, essentially. And I'm really oversimplifying here. But um, buyers also want to buy at a higher cap rate. But right now, um, cap rates are, you said, extremely low, right? They've been low for quite a while. But in second quarter of 22, they were um, 4.5%. And that was down from 5% in um, the second quarter of, tw- of 2021. Um, so yeah, they are low. A lot of people tend to can compare single family and multifamily, but a lot of the competition from multifamily comes from other commercial types, so retail office. And so we have the benefit that, you know, comparing to office, the performance is still quite strong. Oh, that's interesting. And I want, does, do you see that, or do you expect that demand is up in multifamily because retail and office have sort of taken a hit over the last couple of years? There were folks that needed to get money out the door for a variety of reasons. And if you're competing for, now we did have the, the kind of side note of the single family build for rent, which is a 
very new phenomenon. Um, so that has changed the game a little bit. But yes, um, if you need to get money out the door and you can and you have to choose between office, multifamily, and retail, you're probably going to. A lot of them chose multifamily. Industrial obviously is very successful. Um, but yeah, if you're comparing between those um, property types, then multifamily generally wins out. Yeah, that that brings up a great question because you see cap rates so low and expect that they will rise. And this is just my personal opinion. I think they'll rise a little bit, but you wonder how much they would rise just because there's so much demand for apartments as we've been talking about. Um, And there's demand from investors because it is relatively the most attractive property type, as you said, or at least has been over the last few years. Don't know what will happen in the future. Um, But it does uh, make you wonder how much they would rise and if deals do start to get repriced, how dramatic that adjustment might be. Yeah, I think we're still in the wait and see scenario because we don't know how much more interest rates will rise. What's going to go on with um, you know, the other uh, sectors? I know there's a lot of talk about um, adaptive reuse. We're trying to work on some research for that. So you know, changing a suburban office park into apartments is not an easy feat, but it's definitely getting talked about more. I know I saw, I drove by a completely empty office park the other day and was like, they need to do something with that. It's been like this for years at this point. So I think that folks are trying, still trying to figure out what to do. But yeah, cap rates are low. So I think that I, if they went up, I wouldn't be shocked. You, I love the idea of adaptive reuse too, by the way. I was talking about to someone about that this weekend, that there's just so much retail, or not retail, but uh, a lot of office space in particular that could be repurposed into single family or into multifamily housing. And like you said, not easy, but an interesting prospect. It'd be cool if they, if they could figure that out. Uh, the last thing I really want to talk about was over the last few years, there has been a lot made about institutional investors entering the housing market. And you just touched on it a little bit because a lot of the build for rent phenomenon has been driven by those institutional investors. Are institutional investors, I mean, traditionally they are more into multifamily. These are big high dollar buildings, but has the amount of dollars flowing into multifamily from these large hedge funds and other institutional investors increased over the last few years? I don't know if it's increased in terms of volume. It's hard to get data on that. If you look at our top 50, though, it's undeniable that there are certain companies that are private equity funds, for example, that are at the top of the list. I would say, however, I don't know that there is a universally accepted definition of private equity. There is actually an official one, but that's not what people think when they think private equity. For example, there's a company on the top 50 that has been at the top of the top 50 for quite a while. And I actually had to Google that they were private equity owned because I didn't even realize it because I think of them as a traditional multifamily manager. I think that private equity can mean different things. And that's typically what people talk about when they talk about institutional ownership. Are those private equity firms? Undeniable that there are some um, things that don't go right when you have institutional capital coming in, but there are a lot of things that can go well. Um, You have an economy of scale. And so when you look at what happened with the pandemic, some of these companies were able to put 
in place rent freezes, their own voluntary eviction moratoriums because they could afford to absorb that hit. You know, it's a double-edged sword. I don't deny that. There's a lot more attention to it. The size, if you look at the number of units owned on the top 50, has remained largely constant. Um, over time. There's actually a company that owned more units in like the mid 90s than one of big top 50 firms now. I can't remember if they officially surpassed um, the 90s height. But yeah, there's always been economies of scale. All right. Thank you. Yeah, it's just interesting. It honestly, it makes I'm not happy about it, but it makes me feel a little it it's I also struggle to find data about institutional investors, especially in the single family market. And it seems that everyone who puts out a report has an entirely different methodology for how they're getting that. And so you can never really get a consistent answer. And you hear all this anecdotal evidence about it, but it's really hard to quantify what the impact of these institutional investors are, both on, sounds like, both for single family and the multifamily housing market. Well, it's especially weird on the single family side because you have the single family folks and then this, the single family rentals, and then you have the single family build for rent, which a lot of our members, multifamily members, have started investing in the single family build for rent because it's essentially an apartment community. They're just single family detached houses, but they're all in the same community. They all can have the same benefits of, um, you know, multifamily renting. So you can have your maintenance crew out there. You can have your leasing office out there. So it's essentially the same thing, but single family detached. And so you have to figure out how do you, how do you quantify that? Because a scattered site, single family rental, who were a lot of the, you know, big, bad institutional ownership, that's a completely separate phenomenon. Yeah, that's a good point. It is really just an apartment community, which is a slightly different property type. So uh, this has been very enlightening, Caitlin. Thank you. Is there anything else you think our audience should know about the state of the multifamily housing market or where you think it might be going over the next few years? I would say since it's multifamily investors, a lot of folks will look at things like cap rates and sales volumes. And yes, they are important, but at the end of the day, it's the underlying demand. I'm a, I'm a land use planner by training, so that's kind of where I default to anyway. But you have to know where the people are going and where they want to work and where they want to live. So there are some TBDs still, the teleworking phenomenon. We don't know if that's going to stay. I was a teleworker before before it was cool in the <laughs> pandemic. You know, you don't know how often folks are going to get required to be in the office. We've seen some stories about Boise where um, maybe people have had to move away because the teleworking wasn't as permanent as they expected. Where I live, West Virginia, they've tried to bring more teleworkers, and I don't think it's been hugely successful under their programs. So I think that part of the demand is still TBD. And if you're really looking for places to invest, I would look at places that maybe are beyond the teleworking phenomenon and have good fundamentals there. That That's great advice. We actually just did a show on work from home, and we brought in a lot of data, and it's really interesting. And my hypothesis was sort of like, you know, I don't think there's going to be more teleworking going forward. Like, I don't think any companies that are have held out on remote work are going to start adding it right now. But I've already started to see just for, talking to friends who work at like large publicly traded companies, you know, they are starting to step it back a little bit. And even though they stated a work from home policy are now saying, eh, you might need to be in the office one or two days a week. And, um, 
it could be interesting to see if that reverses any of the migration trends that we've seen over the last couple of years, or at least slows down probably some of the ones that we've seen. I did my dissertation work on population metropolitan uh, development. A lot of the older literature talks about how it's really proximity to a major airport. Really? <laughs> that, yeah. So, which is at least is true for me. I'm the, you know, example of one. I live closer to Dallas airport than I do to my office in DC. Because if you're not going to live n- near where your office is, you know, at least I can hop on a plane and get to a conference really easily. And that's true for a lot of teleworkers, apparently. That's super interesting. Never thought about that at all. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for being here. If people want to read your research or learn more about you, what's the best place to connect? You can email me at cwalter at nmhc.org. I'm, I guess, an elderly millennial, so I'm not great at checking my LinkedIn or my Twitter, but I do have a LinkedIn, um, Caitlin Chagrew Walter, if you want to if you want to look me up. Awesome. I haven't heard the term elderly millennial. That seems like an oxymoron, but I think <laughs> I, I'd probably qualify as the same thing. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much for everyone listening. This Caitlin told us before this is her first podcast ever, and I think I'll speak for everyone. You did a fantastic job. Um, oh, thank you're you. a natural, so this fun. was a lot of fun. And hopefully, we could have you back. Where, you know, our audience is very interested in the multifamily market, and you and your organization are doing some of the best research I've seen about the multifamily market. And and we really appreciate everything you're you're bringing to the investor community and helping us understand. Oh, thanks. Happy to help. Huge thank you to Caitlin Walter for joining us today. That was a super informative interview. I know I personally learned a lot and I've been trying to understand the multifamily market a lot better myself personally. I have never sponsored a multifamily deal, but I do primarily invest in syndications and specifically in multifamily deals over the last couple of years. And so I've been trying to learn more about this industry and highly recommend you check out NAMHC.org. They have a ton of amazing research about the industry. So definitely want to plug that. The main thing I, I took away from this interview and why I was so excited to have Caitlin on in the first place was just looking at the long-term demand trends. And when we are on this show, we talk a lot about what is happening in the market here and now today. And that is super important because as an investor, you should be staying on top of those things so that you can make decisions about what property you want to buy, what you know market you should be in, what you should be looking for, what questions you should be asking. That's super important. But it's also, even when you take all of those things into account, it's very difficult to time the market. And to me, what gives me confidence investing in multifamily are these long-term trends. And if there's anything you want to see in something you're investing in is that there is long-term demand. And so what Caitlin was able to share with us is that the United States needs 4.3 million new units by 2035. There's a backlog of 600,000 units that has persisted for years and that there is a chance that multifamily construction could decline with rising interest rates and increased prices. So to me, that means that demand for multifamily rentals from the renter perspective, there are still going to be a lot of people who are looking to live in these multifamily apartments. And that means demand and potentially rent growth and revenue are going to continue. So 
for me, this gives me a lot of confidence investing in multifamily. Of course, we also learned that some deals need to be repriced right now. Kathy shared a deal with us where she was seeing um, pricing for multifamilies stay stubbornly high, even despite rising costs and rising interest rates, which should bring prices down a little bit. So you do want to be careful and you do want to make sure that you are buying at an appropriate rate. But to me, if you are investing in the long term, which in my opinion, you should be, this bodes very, very well for the entire multifamily industry for over a decade, which is an incredible time horizon to feel comfort that there's demand for your investment class. So big thank you to Caitlin. I hope you all learned a lot from this episode like I did. If you have any questions for me or want to connect about this episode, please do so on Instagram where I'm at the data deli or if you want to connect with our community of investors and you know uh, data-focused investors, you should do that on the BiggerPockets forums. You can just go to biggerpockets.com, and we have a special dedicated forum just for the On The Market podcast. We'd love to answer some of your questions there. I will be there answering them, um, and it's just a great place to connect. So as always, thank you all for listening. We'll see you again next time. On The Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett, editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media, copywriting by Nate Weintraub, and a very special thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show on the market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market, it's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that, or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.